you're back with Encounter with God here on Faith FM. We have no clues for the quiz because the quiz has already been snapped up, but it is something else interesting happening today, Lawson. We did mention it a little bit earlier, but only mentioned it very, very briefly. Yes, yes, there is. Yom Kippur is actually Yom Kippur. happening So what, today. Is, what is Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement, correct? Ah, absolutely. Um, otherwise known as um, the cleansing, of the, the cleansing of the sanctuary. So the cleansing of the sanctuary, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, all refer to the same thing, and this is the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur. So a special shout-out to all of our Jewish listeners this morning who are celebrating Yom Kippur at this particular time. But that raises a question mm-hmm. that we probably should ask just seeing as we're talking about it, you know, what is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and what actually really happens on this day? Well, it's a it's a festival, as we know, um, and it's known as the cleansing of the sanctuary. And I guess just to put it in in broad terms, it's where the sanctuary is cleansed um, and the cleaning. You know, why you, would the sanctuary? Why would God's sanctuary need cleaning? Well, you could imagine, um, you know, every year, uh, well, every day in the year, you know, they're doing animal sacrifices in the temple. This is back in Bible times when they were doing yep. constant animal sacrifice. In the temple era? In the in the temple era, um, they would sacrifice, you know, a, a lamb and they would take the blood into the sanctuary and, and sprinkle the blood onto the veil. And you could imagine after a year, it would be getting pretty full of blood. Like, it would be pretty gross in there. Um, so, yeah, from, I guess, uh, you know, very literal and physical um, standpoint, um, one of the big aspects of Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur and the cleansing of the sanctuary was the actual cleaning mm-hmm, of the sanctuary, mm-hmm. the removal of the blood from the sanctuary. Absolutely. Now, it's interesting to note how uh, Jews in the modern era, Jewish people in the modern era, celebrate Yom Kippur. Yeah. Very, very different from any of their other festivals. And it's, it's worth noting why uh, Yom Kippur by you know synagogue-attending Jews is typically celebrated by fasting. Mm. Now this is this is like the complete opposite of Jewish culture. Jewish culture, you know, very much revolves around food. They love to they love their food. In fact, uh, most Jewish holidays can be summed up by they tried to kill us, we won. Let's eat. <laughs> yeah. well, they're all feasts, right? You know, they invite right. in the Bible. They're all, they're all feasts. They're all feasts. You know, and you go to Purim, which is uh, you know Yom Kippur. Purim comes from the from the word Kippur. So there's a, a connection between those words. But you know, this is this is uh, the, you know, the Persians tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. That's what it's all about. <laughs> and of course, you know, they have a great celebration and they remember the story of uh, Esther and Mordecai. And uh, but Yom Kippur, unlike any other of the Jewish uh, festivals, this one is a day on which they typically fast. Now, the Bible doesn't command them to fast on this particular day, mm-hmm. but it does take the t- teach that this day was to be treated more seriously mm-hmm. than any other day. Um, in fact, according to Jewish tradition, God inscribes each person's fate for the coming year into the book of life. Mm. Okay, so God, God writes your fate Ooh. into the book of life, right, for the coming year. Um, and waits until Yom Kippur to seal the verdict. So it's written down your fate for the next year. Okay, this is this is what Lawson's going to do for the next year. And then he comes along Yom Kippur and it's like, okay, am I going to keep this verdict or am I going to ditch this verdict? Mm. I guess that's where it comes, you know, the incentive to fast and... Fast and pray. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> God, please give me a good year. <laughs> Make sure my name stays in the book of life, is not removed from the book of life. Um, and so this is a time during uh, which uh, Jewish people try to, you know, or, or the inter- intervening period they try to amend their behavior and seek forgiveness for wrongs that they've been done against God and against other human beings 
Um, and, of course, the evening and, and, and day of Yom Kippur are then set aside for public and private petitions and confessions of guilt. And, of course, at the end of Yom Kippur, the hope is that uh, they've all been forgiven. And once it's over, which is sunset this evening, then the food comes out. Yeah. And then we get back to what is typically seen as a Jewish festival. There's some important lessons, though, because this is obviously a day of judgment, and the Bible mm. teaches that Yom Kippur is a day of judgment. I'm going to share a couple of things uh, from the book of Leviticus that take place on Yom Kippur, um, just so that we can, uh, you know, this is so we can understand what's happening here. We'll get back to the book of Acts in just a moment. But the Bible says in Leviticus chapter 16, and this is where you find the cleansing of the sanctuary or the Day of Atonement, it says the priest will take two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots on the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Okay, so Azazel, another name for Satan. Mm -hmm. So basically on this particular day, Rather than the usual sacrifices that would happen, you know, the daily service of the sanctuary, the, the daily sacrifices and so forth, they would bring two goats. Mm. And casting lots was a, a, an old way of basically what we would call flipping a coin. Yeah. Flip a coin between the two. One goat is going to be the Lord's goat. One goat is going to be Satan's goat. Which goat is going to die? Mm-hmm. The... Lord's goat. Absolutely. <laughs> I nearly tricked you there. Um, and, you know, often when we when, when you throw that question out, people are like, oh, yeah, Satan's goat, because they're like, kill Satan. Yeah, get, get, get rid of Satan's goat. Um, it's the Lord's goat that dies because Jesus was the one who died as a sacrifice mm. for us. Yeah, it's really interesting, like the sanctuary service, how much it is actually wrapped up in Christian theology. Like oh, it, absolutely. The whole it, sanctuary service is entirely Christian. In, in very much, it is the, the plan of redemption. It's the plan That's of right. salvation. Everything that is in the sanctuary service points forward to Jesus and to Jesus being the Lamb of God and what he would do for mm. us today. And this one does as well. So why is this happening? Why is the Lord's goat being killed? Well, the, the answer comes down if you go down to verse 15. It says, He will kill the goat of the sin offering. That is for the people. That's the Lord's goat. Bring his blood... Within the veil. Now, that's a term that means it would be brought, that blood would be brought into the most holy place. Now, the sanctuary had three parts you had a courtyard, you had a holy place, and you had a most holy place. Only once a year could anyone go into the most holy place. Mm -hmm. And only one person could ever go in there, and that was the high priest. And this was the only day he could ever go in there, was on Yom Kippur. This was where the Shekinah glory, the visible presence of God was. Mm. And so you can understand that if you were the high priest, you'd probably do some fasting and praying in preparation yeah. for this one <laughs> yeah, as well. You'd take this one pretty seriously. According to Jewish tradition, they would tie a rope around his leg so that if he was struck dead by the presence of God, they'd be able to retrieve the body. Mm-hmm. He had bells and pomegranates on the hem of his robe so that they could stay outside and listen to make sure he was still alive. Yeah. Um, so this was something that was taken extremely seriously. He would go in there and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. This is the only time that blood was ever sprinkled on the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat was the golden lid of the box that the Ten Commandments was in. It's mm. called the Ark of the Covenant. And so what you've got is this. You've got the law of God, the Ten Commandments, that has been broken. And because the law has been broken, sin has been committed because the Bible says sin is the breaking of the law. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing, thing as sin without a law. 
The Bible also says the wages of sin is death. And so therefore the broken law is demanding the death of the sinner. Yeah. Okay. Um, then you've got above that, you've got the mercy seat where the blood is sprinkled. And above that, you have the Shekinah glory, the visible presence of God. And so what you've got is this. You have the blood of Christ coming between the law that is calling for death and God who is endeavoring to save. So when God looks down to look at the law that's going to call for death, what God sees is the blood of Jesus Christ that redeems us from having broken the law. Mm. Just a just a beautiful image here of uh, of salvation. Now, of course, this the Bible goes on to say in verse sixteen, "He shall make an atonement," which is a made up word. It means at one moment, mm. uh, an at one moment. Uh, for the holy place. So the holy place was where blood was typically sprinkled. During the year, every day of the year, blood was sprinkled in the holy place and every drop of blood that was sprinkled there carried the record of sin or every um, piece of flesh that the priest ate, mm. um, would, would he would be transferring sin into the holy place. So the sin of the people of Israel was in the holy place and on the Day of Atonement, Atonement or cleansing is made for those sins that have been transferred into the holy place. Mm. And so this was important why it was that they were to confess their sins in preparation for Yom Kippur is because if your sins are in the holy place, they're going to be wiped clean. There's no record you've ever done anything wrong. Whereas if they are not transferred into the holy place, then those sins are still on you and they are still condemning you to death. And so, yeah, a very, very serious um, service that would take place on this particular day and a serious time for Jewish people to this day. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. Okay, so we got a bit sidetracked there on Yom Kippur, but uh, great little mini Bible study. We need to get back to our normal Bible study, which is the book of Acts. Yes. So we're going to do a bit of a review just to catch us up with the story. Acts chapter 25 is where we're up to. Mm-hmm. And Lawson, if you can read for us Acts 25 uh, verse 13. Yeah, so I think, I think it's good to remember at this point um, Paul has uh, appeared before Festus who, you know, again sees that, um, you know, the Jews are urging Festus, the new governor, governor of um Caesarea said, you know, to bring him back to Jerusalem, to put him on trial and all these things. And and even Festus can see, as Felix saw, you know, uh, there's nothing, you know, this guy's not doing anything. Um, but again, he was a Roman governor and he's uh, not not quite sure what to do. And then uh, King, King Agrippa comes, um, and this is where he appears in the story. And we're going to read from Acts chapter 25 and verse 13. The Bible says, a few days later, King Agrippa arrived with his sister, Beniki. I got that right this time. Beraniki. Beraniki. Okay. You nearly got it right. Nearly. <laughs> to pay respects to Festus. During their stay of several days, Festus discussed, discussed Paul's case with the king. There is a prisoner here, he told him, whose case was left for me by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the leading priest and Jewish elders were pressed charges against him and asked to condemn him. And pointed out to them that Roman law does not convict people without trial. They must be given the opportunity to confront their accusers and defend themselves. When his accusers came here for the trial, I didn't delay. I called the case the very next day and ordered Paul to be brought in. 
but accusations made against him weren't of any crimes I expected. Instead, it was something about their religion and a dead man named Jesus, who Paul insists is alive. I was at a loss to know how to investigate these things, so I asked him whether he would be willing to stand trial of these charges in Jerusalem. But Paul appealed his case. Uh, he, Paul appealed to have his case decided by the emperor. So I ordered that he be held in custody, custody until I could arrange to send him to Caesar. I'd like to hear the man myself, Agrippa said. And Festus replied, you will tomorrow. Okay, so uh, Herod has turned up there um, and uh, tells him all about Paul. And Paul is a rather famous person. Yeah, he's getting some notoriety about him at this point. His name has gone out there. This is not your average criminal. Yeah. Your average criminal is like, well, who would want to listen to this person? You know, there's just some loser that uh, can't get their life together and has, um, you know, just done lots of terrible things. Neither is he your average political criminal who's like, okay, this guy's trying to raise insurrection. The easy problem is just to do away with him. You know, cut the head off the snake and the snake dies. Mm. Uh, Paul is a unit. You know, you sort of you read this story and you wonder, okay, how many criminals were actually given an opportunity to preach the gospel, or, or you know, even to stand in front of uh, a visiting dignitary to present their case? You know, it's not, yeah, the, it's, wow. not, it's not the typical thing that you do. Is like, yeah, let's go, let's have an afternoon's entertainment. Wow, well, what will we do? Well, let's go and drag some crims out of the prison. Let's bring them up here in chains. And they can then share their defense, and we'll sit here and listen to them try and defend themselves. Yeah, for sure. This is this, this is doesn't happen. Big, yeah. This does not happen. The king, you can see here, King Agrippa, is very intently interested in what's going on with Paul. What's happening yeah, yeah, here? Yeah. Because it must be causing a massive stir. So even he in wants to hear what Paul has to say. Mm. In other words, he wants to hear Paul himself present a gospel message. Mm. Now imagine that, Lawson. Place yourself in Paul's shoes. Oof. Yeah, um, you have a uh, you know a head of state, a head of state who is not a believer in God, mm. who has never been a believer in Jesus Christ, calls you in as a prisoner and says, or even even not as a prisoner, but just comes to Lawson and says, Lawson, I want you to do a uh, a gospel presentation. I want you to tell me, you know. Why is it that you believe in Jesus Christ? What are you going to say? Where are you going to start? Man. Oh, man. Dude, this is a gnarly question. It's a lot of pressure. I think definitely would go down to the degree of how much this guy knows. Um, You know, would I start directly in the gospel? Would I start somewhere in prophecy? Would I, you know, but I think... um, like nonetheless, the pressure's on, man. Yeah, how would like, you be feeling? How would oh, you be feeling? I would be, I'd be butterflies. Like I'm always butterflies. Like when I'm about to to speak or anything like that. I've I've started to get pretty relaxed as I'm doing radio. Um, but man, if I had to preach before the head of state, I would be butterflies like crazy. <laughs> Let me tell you a secret, Lawson. Um, nerves are the best thing ever. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you why. You'll always preach your best. You'll always speak your best when you are nervous. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I could never do anything in front of church because I'd be too nervous. That's actually a good thing. Yeah. Uh, because it is nerves that remind you, you can't do this. Mm. It is your nerves that are telling you, this is not you. Mm. This is God. And the other thing is that you know, a lot of people get up and they're like, oh, I did such a terrible job and it was awful and all the rest. Yeah, that's me. 
<laughs> let me let me share with you. I've been preaching for a long time, and, and when you've been preaching for a long time, you have some off days. Every preacher has off mm. days. They, they might not like to admit it, but the reality is that you have some off days, and sometimes I have an off day, and I preach a sermon that just goes nowhere. Mm. You know, I've prepared it the day before or whatever. It's clear in my head. I've got this whole presentation mapped out, and like, yeah, this is going to go perfect. This is going to be fine. There's not going to be any problems here at all. And this is just going to work out. And uh, then you start to preach it and all of those finely tuned points and arguments that you have in your head just sort of turn to mush. Yeah, yeah. And then the sermon just grows a life of its own. And it's like, okay, the only thing I can do now is just shut up and sit down. Just end it, just kill it. And the harder you try to kill it, the worse it gets. And, and there's been times when I've... I've just, you know, I, I finished my sermon. I'm hanging my head in shame, and you, know, you go out to the back of the church because you like to, you know, greet people after the service, and you, and you think that was just terrible. I couldn't even tell what I was talking about. How would anyone else know what mm-hmm. I was talking about? And then I've had people, and this has been the biggest rebuke to me, when I've preached a sermon like that, and they have walked out with tears in their eyes because of what the Holy Spirit has spoken to, said to their heart, to their mind. Mm while I've been preaching, and it's just the biggest slap in the face. Like, Lyle, this is not about you. Yeah. This is not about your skills. This is not about your eloquence. This is about the Holy Spirit. Mm. You know, God is God, God's slapping you in the face and reminding me, I'm the one who's doing this, not you. Mm. And so nerves are a really, really good thing because nerves are a reminder. You can't do this. This, yeah. is, this is God's job. And God will do it through you, regardless of how bad you think it might be. Yeah. So if God calls you, all of there's a, there's a famous saying, and it's very true. All of God's biddings are enablings. In other words, if God asks you to do something, He's going to enable you to do so. Mm. And so a friend of mine uh, stood up in church this Sabbath and did the announcements and said the prayer, opening prayer. Uh, very new Christian, did a fantastic job, but you could tell that he was really nervous. But everybody was blessed. Yeah. And that's what it's all about. You know, it's all about getting out there, having a go, and uh, and, and, and being a part of your worship service and, and contributing. You will be blessed and others will be blessed when you do so. Mm, definitely. Man, it's it's so true. I remember um, actually earlier this year, I had a, a speaking appointment at uh, a big camp, which is a big Christian camp. And I had one of the, the main morning devotions and I was um, getting a lot of uh, a lot of attention and, and, and promotion from, from some of the speakers around, some of the big speakers. And I was uh, really nervous for this sermon. Um but the the morning of, I got up to preach and it was super early in the morning and I forgot to open my phone to get my notes. Mm-hmm. And I just stood up and I did the whole thing from memory and I finished and I was like, that was awful and I'm never going to preach ever again. <laughs> and then people walking up the back, like shaking my hand, like, wow, that was, that was a massive blessing. Those points were so on. And I was like, man, I didn't even know what I was saying. I was so out of it. But man, it's, it's amazing. The, the work of the Holy Spirit, you just, every, I think it's, you know, especially for people um, in ministry or just in general, when you see something happened, like something happened, that's amazing. That's a blessing. Um, I think we need to constantly humble ourselves and remember like, Man, all good things come from God. Absolutely, yeah, most definitely. Okay, let's go back to verse twenty-three. Pick it up. Pick up the story for us there in verse twenty-three. Yeah, for sure. In verse twenty-three, the Bible says, "So the next day, Agrippa and Beniki, uh, Beraniki arrived at the auditorium with great prompt, accompanied by military officers and prominent men of the city. Festus ordered that Paul be 
brought in. Okay, so this is not your just you know average uh, get together. This is actually the big uh, formal celebration that is taking place on this day. This is Andrew Peterson with Cane and Bound. Peterson with Canaan Bound here on uh, Faith FM as we continue through the book of Acts and we are talking about the story of Agrippa and Festus. Okay, so let's let's just ha- have a um, look at the contrast that you have here. This is the official ceremony. So the day before they've mm-hmm. just sort of got together for a chat, but this is the actual official welcome of you know the, the, the state 
the state-sponsored welcome of uh, uh, Herod Agrippa II and his sister Berenike mm. to the city of Caesarea. And so they're putting on a big pomp and show. And so you've got a big parade that runs through the city. You have um, Agrippa II and Berenike and Festus. You know, they are all, you know, dressed to the nines. They are paraded through the city. This is your, your ticker tape parade where everybody gets to come and see the, uh, you know, the political celebrities who are here at this particular, you know, the kind of scene yeah, that it is. It's, yeah. it's, it's like when, you know, Queen Elizabeth turns up and there's, mm. a, there's a whole big deal that takes place and all of the dignitaries are there and the military that is there and, you know, pomp and ceremony, the Bible describes it as. This would have then led to, of course, a uh, a lavish banquet. You know, mm. no expenses spared. And you know, if you've ever been to the Middle East, you know that they know how to put on a banquet, which is a no expenses spared <laughs> banquet. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, massive amounts of food and just you know the highest of the highest of society, dripping with wealth. Mm. And in the middle of that. While that is happening, because this is the the occasion that um, Festus and Agrippa have decided that they will listen to Paul, for their entertainment, they bring in Paul. Yeah, man. So here you've got this little guy. He is um, chained up, you know, mm. in uh, you know, probably handcuffs and, and uh, well, the equivalent thereof. Um, and he is a prisoner. He has been in prison for the last two years, and he gets dragged in here before. you you got a contrast here, don't you? Yeah. A massive, massive contrast, and anybody from the outside looking in, looking on would be, okay, here's the successful people, and here's the unsuccessful. Mm. I think it's like, you know, when you put it in the in the context especially of that it's in during this festival, like this isn't just like a, you know, oh, they're, they're calling Paul in secretly to talk to Agrippa and Festus and it's a secret meeting. This yeah, is, no, no, it's just, it's not this just. This is like, imagine like in the middle of this Queen Elizabeth parade, uh-huh. like they get some some dude out of prison. Some to, random dude to preach the gospel. Man, this is insane. Like that's crazy. And Paul would never have had the opportunity to preach the gospel to Felix, to Festus, to Agrippa, to Berenike and to these other high political officials if he had not been in prison. Mm. And it's really interesting. Um, you know, Paul is one of my favorite writers in the Bible and he says something, he comments, I guess, on this. In, in the book Philippians, he says, um, everywhere and in all things, I've learned to be both abased and to be abound. I've learned to be um, content and to suffer need um, for I can do all things through Christ. And it's, you know, Paul realizes even in prison, um, if he if he has God on his side, if he's working in in tune with the Holy Spirit, even in chains, like he can mm. be a blessing and a witness, and that's exactly what we're seeing here. It's just amazing. I love this. I, love, I just want to read this quote. This comes from the book Acts of the Apostles. It says, "And now Paul, still manacled, stood before the assembled company. What a contrast was here presented, Agrippa." And Berenike possessed power and position. And because of this, they were favoured by the world. But they were destitute of the traits of character that God esteems. Mm. They were transgressors of his law, corrupt in heart and life. Their course of action was abhorred by heaven. Wow. That's a big contrast right there. You know, what we look at as success in our world and what God looks at mm. as, as success, what we see as power and what God sees as power. Yeah. You know, we see people who can command, you know, massive military forces as being powerful people, whereas God sees 
the most powerful person on earth who is somebody who has command over their own uh, yeah. o- o- over their own character wow somebody who is able to surrender to Jesus Christ is the strongest person that there is on the planet mm because man it's it's the biggest test is against self you know the man yeah oof. that's that's where it is it's um yeah so to see like like you said this contrast and um it, it, it's so interesting. It's it's such a parallel to Jesus as well. You know, the single most important and and influential and powerful figure in all of history was the ruler a peasant. and creator of the universe being crucified as a common criminal. Yeah, it just you know, like uh, I remember hearing a story from you know the days of the Reformation. Um, when there was, you know, big revolt against um, the, the the world church at the time, the Catholic Church, and um, all the corruption that was there, and uh, this guy—I forget his name—but he was this famous painter who was who was a reformer, and he and he painted this big picture, and it, on one side was, you know, the Pope heading into mass, and he's wearing, you know, all the all the jewelry and the papal procession, yeah. Um, and then the other side is is Jesus walking, uh, riding into Jerusalem on a on a donkey um, on the Sunday before you know he was eventually crucified. And it's just Mate, this is a very famous event because um, this was a time that they were banned from preaching, mm. and uh, so this guy there's actually two two artists and they they just sat in the town square and just began to paint pictures. Yeah, and one was painting a papal procession, and right beside him, as you said, the uh, you know Jesus on the donkey. They did not need. To say a word. Yeah. Those two pictures spoke a thousand words. Mm. And when you think about it today, nothing much has changed. For sure. It's amazing. We as human beings look at greatness in a very, very different way that God does. Mm. You know, you think of the celebrities that you would most like to meet and sometimes it's interesting to, you know, sit around and like, oh, I've met so-and-so and I've met this person, I've met that person and, you know, name drop all over the place and... My wife is the greatest celebrity meter that there is in, in our family. By far, she's met all kinds of celebrities. And it can be fun to talk about, but in reality, God does not look at these people as celebrities. Mm. You know, I think of people in our just in our local church, like Ernie, for instance, um, who in, 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 the, uh, in, in the way that God looks at human beings is a much greater celebrity than any of the celebrities that my wife has ever met. You know, she's wow. met Bill Clinton. She's met... Um, oh, I don't know, a bunch of um, actors and, you know, just seems to have this knack of bumping into them. And uh, and yet God would look at Ernie who just gives his his, his life, gives, gives his self. Um, it's just a self-sacrificing individual. God would see him as being, you know, a, a far greater celebrity in the courts of heaven. Mm. You know, it, it, it's just a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a big contrast here. Okay, so this is a question that comes up. What should this story teach us about outward appearances which may be pleasing to human sight and can often be deceptive about the reality behind the appearance? What about ourselves? How different is the appearance from the reality? So there's a question for you, Lawson, yeah. and a question for me. Mm-hmm. How different is the reality of what people see when they look at us? Mm compared to the actual reality when God looks at us. Yeah, well. Because God sees everything. Everything. Well, I think it just, you know, um, it very much highlights, you know, the, the Bible says that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I feel like sometimes um, 
for myself, uh, you know, people who aren't super close to me but see me around, they see me, um, for example, hosting radio. This would be the same as you, hosting radio, Mm -hmm. preaching and teaching and whatever it may be. Um, And they say, wow, this guy has got great faith and Bible knowledge and he must be doing it well. And then, but, you know, you know in your heart where you fall short. I know in my heart, man, I I fall short hard of the glory of God. Think about this. Think about this. Next time you're sitting in a in church and the sermon's kind of boring, think about how long you would stay sitting there if your random the random meanderings of your mind were projected on a big screen up the front. Oh man! Ooh, <laughs> ouch! This is uh, Gregor Pillay.
They're living far longer and far happier than most people in the world. And now, their secret's out. Six regions have been identified as blue zones, places where people experience holistic health, and it's doing them a lot of favors. So do yourself a favor and come along to the free Rethink Health workshops, where we will explore six core principles of health and longevity proven through the Blue Zones at the Swansea Center Sunday, October 7, October 14, and October 21st. From 5 p.m. is where you'll find us. For more information, call 0402-528-869 or search for the Rethink Health event on Facebook. Filled the treasures of the sea 
listening to Ali and Leighton with the song Beyond here on Faith FM as we continue with the show. And of course, it is now time for Question of the Day here on Faith FM. Lawson, what is our question of the day today? Our question of the day is, does the Bible talk about premarital sex? Now, apparently you were saying that you heard somewhere something, some story about this the other day. Yeah, I heard on on another radio station someone say um, that the Bible does not talk about premarital sex and that it's... That it's okay. So, a quick is. search on the computer came up with like 35 <laughs> references to it, um, but that's okay. This is an interesting question coming in from a listener. What does the Bible say about premarital sex? Uh, very simply, the Bible says don't. Yep. In the show. There, we, there ne- you ne- go. Next question. <laughs> okay, so let me just give you an example of this. Uh, and this comes from Matthew chapter 15. And we're going to read from verse 19. It says, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, theft, lying, and blasphemy. It's interesting in the context of this that fornication is placed in the same context as murder and stealing and lying, and you wouldn't really expect that to be the case. Mm. So adultery, uh, usually, typically in adultery, but not always, um, one or both of the couple are married who is you know, participating in this illicit relationship. With fornication, the assumption is that neither of them are married. In other words, this is outside of the, uh, the, the, the marriage vow. So just considering this for a moment, we have to ask ourselves, what is the basic foundational principle to biblical morality? Mm. You know, is biblical morality arbitrary did god just sit up in heaven and say okay i'm going to make up a whole moral system here that um there's just an arbitrary system that uh that, that simply is uh you know this is what i like and this is what i don't like and therefore you guys have to live with it or is there something else that is the basis for it and i want to put out there that biblical morality is identical to secular morality so secular morality says do no harm Mm-hmm. Okay, that's that's the foundation. They say, okay, if it's not doing any harm, then go ahead and do with it. And, and, and of course, in secular morality, they will then use that concept of do no harm to do all kinds of things that do a lot of harm, simply because they don't believe that it does any harm. But just because you believe, don't believe that it's doing harm does not mean that it is not doing harm. Mm-hmm. So what harm could there be in having sex outside of the marriage relationship? Well, first of all, 
when you open that door, you open the door to a lot of young people and typically, you know, people start at a very, very young age to have sex. My generation was particularly bad at this. Uh, most of my friends, when I was in school, uh, began to be sexually active around about 12 years of age, thereabouts. Um, some of them were like really embarrassed because like, oh, I didn't lose my virginity until I was 14. And, uh, and so I had friends that were within that category as well. That is not going to create a healthy environment. Mm -hmm. In fact, the younger a person uh, begins to become sexually active, the higher their divorce rate is within the first five and then in the first 10 years of life. And it's dramatically higher. So somebody, um, say for instance, with amongst women, their divorce rate in the first five years of marriage is twice as high if they became sexually active before the age of 18. Wow. Um, and, and in the first 10 years, it is uh, 47% to 27%. So it's, it's still fairly uh, fairly similar, nearly twice as high. And so God doesn't like to see people go through pain. Divorce is a painful thing. And basically what God is saying is, look, if you want to have a happy life, and nobody's ever going to mess up their life by being a follower of Jesus. Mm-hmm. He's saying this is a better path. This is a path that is going to bring you less harm and less heartache than if you go down this other path over here. And so if you look at a, a, a relationship, for instance, relationships, you know, people become boyfriend, girlfriend, etc. And the purpose of that is so that they can get to know each other in preparation for marriage. They're painful when they break up. They're, it's a good thing when a wrong relationship breaks up before marriage infinitely more painful if the couple have been sexually active. Mm. Um, The success rate of marriage becoming a lifelong commitment is 22% higher amongst people who wait until they're married to have a sexual relationship. And then, of course, they have the opportunity to develop that sexual relationship over a whole lifetime and for it to improve and to grow within the context of a committed relationship. This is Matthew Mole. You're listening to Faith FM. Choose, and I know I'm going. 
Matthew Mole with you and your crown here on Faith FM and we have come to the end of our show which means that we're about to give something away which is super exciting because it is always more blessed to give than receive and so we always get the biggest blessing here on Faith FM but we have a blessing coming for you today and Lawson tell us all about it. This is a DVD called Kingdom Come. This is super interesting and this is something that... um, as One of the best documentaries I have seen in recent times, historical documentary. Yeah, it's amazing and it's something that like I've actually wanted uh, as long as I've been a Christian. Um, it, it revol- What it is, it's a documentary that revolves around a prophecy in the book of Daniel chapter 2. Um, it's widely regarded by by Adventist ministers anyway. It's like the, the ABCs of prophecy. It's super basic but super profound and it's something that changed my life. Um, seeing this prophecy unfolded in the Bible, and now it's been made into this documentary called Kingdom Come. Um, this came out earlier this year. It was an initiative uh, by the by the Adventist Church. They come together in a, in a collective, and, and they went to a whole bunch of sites and got some footage, and, and there's some amazing historians and, and authors and these things talking about... Um, you know the events of this prophecy mm-hmm. and it's oh man it is just incredible i saw it this year at a uh, big camp it was really cool it was on a massive widescreen projector and there were like you know nearly a thousand people in this tent watching this uh watching this movie and it was it was just incredible um so yeah if you want to call up and win this amazing prize you can uh, call us on 1-800-324-843 or text in 0491-064-669 and you will receive this anywhere you are or contact us via social media but of course if you would like to know more about the bible then give us a call we can arrange that for you small group bible studies one-on-one bible studies correspondence bible studies digital bible studies any kind of bible study you like anywhere in australia we can arrange a Bible study for you where you can learn more about Jesus, about His Word, about the plan of salvation, about the promise of His return. It's been great joining you this morning. Look forward to joining you again tomorrow.
stay with 